to be with you, um, looking at familiar faces. Uh, it, it is pretty surreal for me to be back here. I, I, I love coming back here. It's the land of Wawa. I love Wawa. Uh, I know the people clapping, you know, it's, it's like glorious to talk about Wawa, but uh, um, people in Ohio just don't get it, you know, they, they, just, don't, they just don't understand. So um, there's just something wonderful when I drive past one. I just want to go inside and hug everybody and say it's great to see you again. Um, well, um, I, I, um, I, I landed on this passage not for a particular reason as I was thinking about you or anything like that. We've, we spent a lot of time in Mark's gospel, and um, I, I was just, I've been particularly helped uh, by uh, this, this section uh, with Peter and, and failure. And as we all know, when we, when we look at ourselves honestly, um, there are failures that take place in our lives. And the question really is, how do we come back, uh, how do we really come back to Christ in spite of and through our failure? And I think this passage just had a, has a word uh, about that that really begins in verse 53, uh, where, where Jesus, I, I would call the first rock in this passage. Really, it's a tale about two rocks. But the one we often think about is, is Peter being the rock, the, the, the beginner of, of the church. His name means that. But the real rock in this passage is Jesus. Peter is the rock that crumbles. He's going to betray Christ. Peter, Jesus is the rock that stands firm. And the way that Peter's transformation is going to take place, it's going to take place not through him drawing on his own reserves, but it's going to take place really through his own pain that the Lord walks through him with. And if you think about even... Um, our own sense of transformational process. It's that we have to learn really the pain of crumbling before we learn how to stand firm. And we've got to learn that it's not us uh, realizing our own uh, devices, standing kind of in the firmness of our own promises made to God and kept, but it's really on the promises that come to us through the Bible and the power that Jesus gives us to stand. And I think that's really what starts to come through in this passage as we look at really the two rocks. The one crumbling rock like limestone, chalky, will break right away, being Peter, but really the second one being the rock of Gibraltar, Jesus, who even when he was questioned at one of his most dark hours, he stood firm perfectly in the power of the Holy Spirit and I think gives us the power to continue on uh, through our own painful transformation. So just look at these uh, two rocks this morning. The first uh, begins with, with Jesus, verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came <clears throat> together and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Just those two verses, I think, start to set the contrast. Jesus before the high priest, standing firm like a rock. Peter setting himself up for failure by following at a distance, choosing the warmth of the fire, and keeping himself at arm's length from Christ as the, as the rock that's going to crumble. But Jesus is first here. Now, I'm a, I'm a big uh, aficionado of, of the Law and Order Enterprise, the series. There's like 27 of them. And, and every, every, probably from the very beginning, whenever they come on, um, we'd watch Marathon Law and Order. So I loved, I, I loved that show. Uh, and, and when, you know, kind of the, the, the dark music stops, you know, the, the, the whole drama st starts in, uh, there, there's a sense in which there's a building in that TV show where 
uh, they get to the end, and there's the, the, the music starts to play, and, and there's uh, a lot of drama that happens right in the courtroom. And what, what you find in a courtroom is that when a person is on trial for their life, it, there, there's, there's both positive and negative, whether they're going to speak or not, in defense of themselves. And what you find with Jesus here dramatically is um, his response to his uh, questioners. But this, there's, there's just a drama here. Jesus is on trial for his life. You would think that the defense or the, or the prosecution would have their, all of their uh, nuts and bolts, everything ready, but it's completely the opposite. They are a bumbling group of people. They cannot get their act straight at all. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You just picture a courtroom scene with the prosecution, with the, with the paper spread all over the table. You know, the guys who are trying to put this case together can't get witnesses to say the same thing. When one starts speaking, you can almost imagine the other guy going, be quiet, be quiet, don't say that, don't say that. Because they, they just cannot agree on anything. They're trying to put Jesus on trial from his life to, to be uh, uh, convicted of blasphemy which would be a, a sentence of death, but they, they cannot get their act together. They need to call witnesses, but the witnesses can't even say the right thing. And after the prosecution completes their, their nightmarish uh, act here in calling the witnesses forward, Caiaphas finally comes uh, and, and asks Jesus the, the, the most important question. It's the code red question. Did you order the code red? Here's the, here's the question. It's, it's, very, it's very, very simple. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That's it. Out of all the questions you could ask, that's the number one question that should be asked. Forget about the rest of the trial. Forget about the rest of the testimonies. This, this is it. And what you find with Jesus as, as the rock, he doesn't simply answer a question, but he's wise enough to answer the questioner. And it's important to see the distinction between those two things. Jesus isn't simply the one who gives a response to what's put in front of him, but he always understands that what you're really responding to is the heart of the questioner. That's who he's talking to here. <clears throat> Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. Jesus was following that here. As the barrage of questions and, and blows come, Jesus answered, Jesus answered such a way that was not defensive, did not go down rabbit trails, but he understood the truth to be on his side because everything he had done, he had done in public. And therefore, he put himself in a way above reproach. People really couldn't make an accusation against him because everything that happened happened right out in the view of everyone. So there was no way anybody could come and say that he was up to some sinister plan or had some plot in place that he hadn't told anybody about. In fact, he had been telling everybody about who he was. He had told his inner circle specifically about what he wanted to accomplish, and they didn't understand. But he wasn't guilty of anything because he wasn't hiding anything. And as I started to think about Jesus' response to the high priests and the people, it just made me think of how important it is as I talk to someone I'm not simply giving an answer, but I'm answering the questioner. What is in the heart of a person who is asking a question about whatever it is we're talking about when it comes to spiritual things? 
What are they really driving at? What are they really thinking about? Because I think a lot of times what happens in the heart of a person as they, as they ask a question is they've really already reached a conclusion. The, the question merely is to, is to ferret something else out. I, I had a really good friend uh, in, in seminary, and he um, showed me the ropes early on uh, sharing my faith. He, we used to go out together as part of a seminary class, and he called um, his little method uh, the Columbo method, which uh, now I'm totally dating myself. I actually never watched that show because I was too young, but uh, uh, just for the record, but he, he, used to, he used to ask these questions, and the, and the first one, when he was talking to someone about his faith, and someone would, would respond, he'd say, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, like, what do you mean by that? It's such a simple question, but it's just a way to turn back and make sure that you get a definition on the kinds of words people are using, especially when you think about what's been imported when it comes to spiritual verbiage. You know, people say, well, I'm spiritual. Well, what do you mean by that? You're like, what, is, what, is, um, what does that look like? How do you define that? And then the second question that I, I found extremely helpful to get to the heart of the questioner was, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you get there? And usually that's associated with a story, some kind of life event of how they reach a conclusion about something related to Jesus or faith. And I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time with people in many ways undoing a lot of maybe some of the negativity that had happened to them in their life as a result of the church or, uh, you know, so- something else uh, in their lives about, about Christ, God, or, or whatever. So what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And what's the story there? And then finally, have you ever considered? Have you ever thought about? If I could think with you just for a second, have you ever thought about this? And I, 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 have, I have found so much help in those little questions uh, and so much help in even looking at Jesus as, as the rock who not simply answers the questions, but really answers the questioners. A way in which to have a dialogue with people where we're really zeroing in on the heart of the things that are most important. And Jesus does the same thing here. He zeroes in on the heart of the questioner. When the question is asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, I am. He's, He's making, again, a claim to deity here. And then he alludes back to Daniel 7 about the Son of Man coming back to judge, and he's referencing himself now. And this is where the tables completely turn. This is really where he's now going to speak the truth to power. He's saying, basically, I'm not the one here on trial. I am coming back as the judge, the righteous one. And I am going to put on trial all those who have rejected and stood against me. You think you are the ones who are asking the questions. But I am the one actually telling you the truth. And they stood now in their own words as witnesses against themselves. And the, the amazing part here uh, about Jesus is that he, he doesn't do this in any self-serving way. He does this in a way to teach us all that as religious and powerful as these people were, that he was the righteous judge. He is coming back again. And we will have to reckon with that. And so when we, when we, wow, there it is, man. There it is. What time is it? I was going to figure out what time it was serving. That was going to happen. 
Oh, oh there's the clock right there, about 10 to, 10 to 11. That's good. All right. Um, we got one. Now, <laughs> where was I? Uh, <laughs> this is your trial. When the insults fly, when, 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 when the blows are raining down, when Jesus is completely insulted by, by, uh, by people who have no business being in his presence, we have, we have the truth that will remain. And the, and the truth is very, very simple. That as Jesus came as Savior, Jesus will come back as judge. And in his, in his darkest hour, he continues to stand as a rock, not defensive, uh, not hiding anything, but, but simply making an answer for all of us to lean on. See, <clears throat> we, we may come, stand in front of people, and, and, and just, it, it's just so hard. It's, it's so hard when people disagree with you. They look at you like you have to be crazy for what you believe. We come back to passages like this because we all sense we want to shrink away. We all, we all want to crumble. I mean, frankly, if we get honest with ourselves. And a passage like this is so helpful because we need Christ. We need the power of Christ in us to not be defensive, to, 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 to be above reproach, and to have the presence of mind, to be able to ask questions. Because we know at the end of, at the end of it all, when, when people are, are, are speaking against us, they're really speaking against Christ in us. And, and we need the, the power of Christ to stand like a rock. Really, we need his rock-like power to help us, especially be wise in the way we answer people who would utter such foolish things like that was uttered here. Peter here is, is the, the crumbling rock. This is the second part of this passage. And he finally breaks under the weight of his, his own betrayal. We said before, I think that the account of Peter's betrayal, it really starts in, in verse 54. But you think his betrayal, it has a much earlier start than that. In fact, if you go back to verse, uh, or chapter 14, uh, verses 26 to uh, 31, you, you can start to really see where Peter's betrayal is going to come true. Jesus, says in, uh, Jesus said, and this is verse 27 of chapter 14, okay, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. I think one of the first things we notice here, it says that Peter followed at a distance. How does crumbling start? Peter's been going along with Christ. He's got a pride about him, a kind of self-sufficiency. He's always the first one to talk, right? Jesus will ask a question. Peter will blurt out an answer. He's like many, many people. It's just in him to do this. But for him, it's about self-sufficiency and power. It's about being impressive. Oh, they all will fall away, Jesus, but I won't. Peter, you realize you're talking about all those guys right in front of them? Yeah, but I'm telling you right now, I won't. Jesus then speaks and says, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
Well, Peter, that's a very, very impressive thing to say. But you have already sown the seeds of your own crumbling by trying to impress Jesus with your promises. And so he starts that road toward crumbling by following Christ at a distance. And that is exactly where Satan wants him to be. How often do we set up ourselves for failure by keeping Jesus at arm's length, thinking that the good things that maybe we have done or the promises that we've made might somehow impress him? But he's not up for being impressed. When you're not close, intimate with the Savior, you have a hard time hearing his voice, a hard time recalling his actions. Just thinking you're safe and okay and comfortable, you're fine with that. Let's go near the fire. Let's stay warm. Let's keep Jesus just enough in view, but not keep him close enough toward me. So then, as Peter starts going along here, he's warming himself by the fire. It says, One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. It's so funny. That, that, that crumbling, keeping Jesus just at a distance, then starts to reveal a fear. Peter has been operating now in, in kind of an impressive mode, and now the, the, the seeds of self-preservation and that value is starting to take over, and he's fearful. A little girl. 12-year-old, one of the ones sitting right here, says, oh, I saw you. You were with him. And Peter comes out with this great response. I neither know nor understand what you mean. Peter, you're not running for president of the United States, okay? This is not a debate. All she said was, you were with him, the Nazarene. I don't know what you're talking about, little girl. Get out of here. Self-trust leads to fear which leads to crumbling and radical self-preservation that leads to betrayal. That's what's starting to happen here. Peter's world is crumbling. The drama ensues as the questions toward Peter start to get more pointed. His, his fear is now leading to a complete and utter breakdown. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now he has completely lost it. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. And he's in with, he is within eyeshot and perhaps earshot of Jesus. Luke twenty two sixty one 61 says, after the third denial that the rooster crowed, that the Lord looked straight at him. That look. Peter is now screaming bloody murder. And Jesus turns and looks right at him before the rooster crows. It's incredibly revealing about Jesus, the rock. In, in the haze of false witnesses, mocking, spitting, being beaten, Jesus is focused on the outcome of what is happening to his servant, Peter. Think about it. This is the kind of rock that we have in Jesus. In the midst of his worst betrayal, Jesus does not take his eye off his child. And neither does he do that with you. And when you think about this now, 
And I want to take just a couple of minutes here at the end to think through God's love and why really this had to happen to him in order for Peter to become the kind of apostle and speaker of the gospel he became. His transformation had to come through pain, and God was going to walk alongside of him through that pain in order to transform him further into uh, the image of his Savior. Peter's way back toward Christ then would come by God's love, or if you like, a, a severe mercy. What we need to consider first, I think, is, is the love of God and the look of Jesus at an utter failure. There is a severity to the love of God we often don't consider because I think we're more informed by the culture about God's love than about how the Bible presents it. There is a clarity of purpose about the way God transforms us in and through his love. His love always has an aim. It has a purpose, and that purpose is to conform you and I into the image of his son, and that process always will carry some pain with it. Whether it be the pain of circumstances that he takes us through that we would never choose, or the pain of bad decisions that we make that we suffer the consequences on, all the pain is tools in his hands so that we might be conformed further into the image of our Savior. That conformity process will come through pain and discipline. Dominic Smart, who wrote a little book called When We Get It Wrong, uh, it's a book, by the way, I've worn out. It's about this thick, which I really like. I love a good short book that I can get through quickly and tell all my friends I read a book this week. It has helped me immensely. Probably the best book I've, I've read, top three. Uh, and he says this. I've been really helped by him on this section of Scripture. He says, it sounds inconceivable in these self-sensitive days that Jesus, like a surgeon, would rather hurt you to have you well than to gently indulge you as you sink into a spiritual coma. He is more concerned that you share his holiness, that you have a good time. His love is so much better, more thorough, more persevering, more purposeful than what we often call love. Those he disciplines, he loves. And when when we start to think of Jesus' thoroughgoing love for Peter and how Peter had to go through some of that pain in order to have all the bombast and that sense of trying to impress the Lord, it literally had to be destroyed. That was the only way he was going to become a useful servant in the eyes of God. Because his servanthood was not going to take place on the back of his own promises to God, but only was going to take place on the back of the promises that God had made to him. And so when we start to think about this, Peter's way back and his way into fruitfulness, into ministry, had to start first by his absolute grieving over his sin. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept because he finally came to that realization that it wasn't about him anymore. It was about the fact that he had broken God's commands. He had broken the very thing that he even had promised to God. There was nothing in him. There was nothing in him that, that would be ever impressive as if he could earn the favor of God. It just wasn't going to happen that way. And here's, here's what the severe mercy of God is going to do in his holy love. It's, it's, 
the holy love of God isn't going to indulge Peter's self-sufficiency in a sense of self-trust. The holy love of God was going to allow him to go through this process. He was going to learn the song lyric, nothing in my hand I bring, but only to the cross I cling. That's what he was going to learn. It wasn't about his vain promises. It was about what God was going to do through him. But he had to be set on his face. The second thing that had to happen for Peter was that he wasn't, he wasn't allowed to just go along with Jesus at a distance. He wasn't just going along. My, I, I, remember, I remember trying to, to um, describe what the words that uh, were used for dating to my grandmother when I was like in high school. And, and I said, oh, well, you, you go out with girls. That's, what they, that's, what they, that's, how they, that's how they called it. And I remember her saying, well, who are you going along with? And we all laughed, you know, like going along but it's, it's so funny. It's, a, it's such a sentimental idea. Like, there's just, a, we're, just, we're just going along together. But th- that's not what Jesus allows Peter, to just be kept at a distance, to just sort of go along, to keep Jesus as, you know, kind of in our, in our, a little bit of our back pocket as a, as a nice time. But, but not anybody I'm going to give my life to. He doesn't allow that at all. Peter loved Jesus, or Jesus loved Peter that much that he had to allow him to go through this, uh, this, this painfully difficult experience so that he, at the end of that experience, might be able to build him back up. And that's what the love of God does. The love of God meets us where we are, but doesn't leave us where we are. And when you, when you start to think about it, people love the idea of the unconditional part of, of God's love. God loves me unconditionally. And the assumption is, therefore, I don't need to change. But that, that couldn't be any le- that, that, that could not be true at all. The fact that God loves us, yeah, he meets us where we are in his love. He never leaves us in the same place. He, he, he brings us to a place through painful transformation to look more like his son. Better to think of it this way. God loves you and God accepts you more specifically, God accepts you unconditionally, yes, in and through the perfection of his son. When you think about it that way, then yes, my acceptability comes not because of the impressive feats that I make for God or the the wonderful things that I say about him, but rather it comes through the perfection of Jesus, so that when God looks at me through him, he does see someone perfect, but not because of something that we've done on our own, but something that he's accomplished for us. And to think about that then in the terms of acceptance and love, that God will then take you as someone who has gotten it wrong and utter failure and turn you into something that is useful. When you truly get to the point of Peter where he's breaking down and weeping, when you truly get to that point, you you could look at yourself and say, I don't think I have anything left to give. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Once you realize you have nothing left to give and nothing more to do, that's the exact place God wants you to be. It's just, it's so ironic. It's so strange. It's so counterintuitive. But that's the only way God is going to gain more glory for himself as he takes a useless and broken vessel and turns it and uses his flourished glory as he manifests his own power. And that's why he takes people all the time. He takes them through these, these difficult circumstances in life. In order to, to heal people, God, he has to wound them first. And those wounds come as we make decisions, as we indulge ourselves, as we act like Peter. We live in our fear, distance, self-trust. 
But God is greater than our hearts. His love and mercy is severe at times, but it has to be useful to us as we think about it because it's the greatest hope that we're ever going to have, that God continues to walk and look at and think with and has a plan to use the biggest failures among us. That's the love of God. And it's so different from the kind of love that many people have about God where, where people think, yes, God is loving. He wants to give me good things. He wants to help me along. But immediately that idea of his love is jettisoned as soon as something bad happens. As soon as something bad happens, it reveals the state of what people really think about the love of God. But the more we see the scriptures, the more we realize that, yes, he does walk alongside utter failures, but he walks alongside of them with a purpose so that they might be more conformed into the image of his son. I, I have... Um, I, I got to the uh, I got I, I got to this point when I was um, when I was I was preaching through through a passage through this passage and in my office um, I was reminded of the two concepts Jesus being the rock of my salvation but his banner over me is love and so I started to. I just started to, to write that down. And do you know where I learned that? In the basement here. <laughs> I don't even know who sang it, I, but I know I learned it. And I know that the truth of that song comes out through a passage like this. That Jesus is the rock of my salvation, of our salvation, that his banner over us is love, and even we as crumbling rocks can turn to him our rock who understands the heart of every question that we've ever had, who when uh, was insulted, treated horribly, and, and given an unjust death, took it because he, he understood that there was a purpose and plan in place. So he is the rock of my salvation, and his banner over me is love. And when we think about the love of God, and uh, displaying and speaking the truth of God. And I'll just piggyback on what Aaron and I talked about earlier. Don't doubt, do not doubt that when you speak the word to children like was spoken here, don't, don't ever doubt that God's word doesn't, uh, that, will ever, that it will ever come back as void or vain. Because you never know, you never know the kinds of things that you're teaching a child here that will pop back into his or her head 25 years later as they're sitting in an office, in a study, trying to land the plane of a sermon and singing a children's song that they learned when they were six years old. Don't ever forget that. Because whatever contribution and investment you make, you are a part, you are a part of something. Shawnee, Shawnee is a part of something that I think is, is very, very special. And I, I think in many ways very unusual that God raised up a church like this. And for as many people who have gone out from, from this church, some we know and, and some we don't know, and for as much or more people who were behind the scenes, faithfully praying, speaking the word, cleaning up, you know, taking care of what needed to be taken care of. It, it's, it's so special. And it's, a, it's the grace of God. And what, 
what, what um, Jeff and Aaron and I were reflecting on last night is the hope that we have going forward. Now, my, one of the guys that mentored me has drilled a phrase in my head, and I'll share it with you. The, in Christ, the best is always yet to come. Always yet to come. Looking backward, we see things in hindsight, 2020. Yes, God has done some pretty cool things. But to look forward and think of what he can and will accomplish through his promises, through people that would consider themselves utter failures, just it's mind-blowing what he could do. And he does it in and through the power of the Bible than the local church. And that is exciting. And he continues to do that here. And it's an absolute privilege for me to be with you to share in that today. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this group of people. Even as um, I stand here and see uh, faces many years removed, I'm reminded of uh, how gracious you are to me uh, to think of so many that prayed faithfully for me uh, through my time uh, at Cedarville and really who, in a sense, prayed me into the kingdom we think now, Lord, of the prayers that we will offer for the next generation and for generations to come from this place. We ask you, Lord, now that you'll continue to raise up many, that a great fruitful harvest will come as people go out into all corners of the earth. We pray today that you will accomplish that, that you'll use your word and your people. And Lord, while we may not see some of the results we want to see immediately, we pray that you'll give us the faith to know that one day all things will become sight. Help us, Lord, to remind us in that. And Lord, we, we pray that as we gather together for a great harvest one day in eternity, we'll be able to look at each other and say, it wasn't because of our impressive feats. It wasn't because of anything we promised to do. But it was all because of your grace. We thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.